Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello and welcome to All the Things. This is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and I am here once again with the one and only Monique Dusan. Welcome. Hello. Good to be with you guys. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Saturday. You guys, please help us support the show, share the show, like the show on your devices or wherever you're watching from. Make sure to send the show out to a friend, send it to an enemy, make it fun. That's always your Uh, favorite. It really is. We are live on YouTube and on Facebook, so please put your comments there. Now, this show tonight is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, Theology Mom, Family 210 Clothing, and Impact 360. That's right. And, um, you know, sharing the show, I know we kind of go through that little pedantic exercise every time, but it really is important as... The tech gods do tend to like to conceal our content. And so that really does help us. We also want to say a shout out. Thank you to our moderators there on the chat. Make sure to jump in and let us know you're watching, where you're watching from, and that uh, maybe even who you plan to share the show with. But it's a great place to interact and find community with other like-minded people, particularly on tonight's topic. So Monique, why are you, where are you? Are you in a secret undisclosed location? Yes, my house. Yes. Well, tonight's show that you are watching is a pre-recorded show and it is pre-recorded because of the topic and because of the guest. And so as we begin to unwind all of our content tonight, you will definitely understand why we are pre-recording this show. But because we are doing a live show later this evening, I decided to do this show from home and not waste gas because, honey, gas money is almost $7 a gallon in California. So I'm doing this show from home. It is crazy. And I could do a whole show on that all by myself and our corrupt government. But that is not for today's conversation, people. So what else is happening in your life? Maybe we should give a, a couple of ministry updates. Well, I think what's happening in my life is the same thing that's happening in your life. We actually finished our book. Like we are done, done. Like we sent out the last edits. We were like, send, go. And yes, and it's been, it's, oh my gosh, it was such a good feeling to send that off. We got confirmation that they received it and are super thankful for this opportunity and the journey that this has been. Many of you have walked alongside our journey in writing, walking in unity. I mean, from the time we signed the contract and found out that, you know, people were interested in having us write a book through the writing process until the moment we hit, you know, send yesterday at five o'clock. And so thank you. Wasn't it? It was pretty crazy. Um, And people can pre-order the book now on Amazon. Just go to Amazon and type in walking in unity. And then you could type in like one of our names or something. It should pop right up. But uh, we want to let you know that pre-ordering the book actually really helped us because it lets the publisher know, it lets the algorithms know that our book is a book that 
represents a perspective that maybe isn't out there as much, but we want to give it a, more exposure and that we want to let publishers know people are interested in this content. So pre-ordering is a great way of supporting the ministry. If you think you're going to buy the book anyways, um, just go ahead and pre-order it because that really helps other people know outside of the ministry realm that this is important content and you support it and you're putting your dollars behind it. Yes. And so far, people have started to pre-order it. Yeah. Um, and we have some amazing people endorsing this book. And we don't want to go too far down the, the rabbit trail of the book. That's not the topic of tonight's show. But just know that there are some incredible minds um, and voices who are in apologetics, who are definitely standing behind us, this work, our model, and saying, yes, this is definitely the way the church should go. And we will disclose more of those endorsers and who wrote the foreword and things like that in the coming weeks and months as we start our marketing campaign. And people can look forward to drop on February the 6th, yeah. 2024. I'll be here before we know it. Yes, yes, yes. Tonight's yeah. show is a topic that we have been discussing since the beginning of our ministry. Yeah. Tonight's show topic is human trafficking. And so back in September of 2020, we actually did a full length, all the things episode with a human trafficking ministry based out of Cambodia. But in recent months, the conversation of human trafficking has exploded on the scene again with Tim Ballard and his new movie, and things like that. And so, Krista, you've really taken some heat for, for some of the things that you've said in regards to Ballard, in regards to his film and his organization, but you, you like stood strong. So kudos to you on that. Um, but tonight we are going to actually dig a little deeper. Yeah. And that in this show doesn't have anything to do with Ballard or the Sound of Freedom. I want to make that clear, but people can go check that out at Theology Mom and some of the research I've been doing there. But I will say the film made me go deeper into the topic and we don't want to give the impression like we are on some sort of oh human trafficking is the hot topic so let's jump on that bandwagon no we've we've been talking about human trafficking consistently since the beginning of the ministry we think it's an important justice issue that needs more conversation more understanding and um but also a level of circumspectness. We don't want to fall into the fear of that it's everywhere all the time. So we are trying to bring on some experts in the coming weeks uh, to talk about these issues. So people will want to be watching our channels for more content on this. And I kind of took it on myself to start interacting with experts behind the scenes. I had a, several first-person interviews with people that work in the anti-trafficking situation in a variety of ways. I talked to one gal who helps spearhead a recovery house for trafficking victims in Africa. I talked to a guy who trains law enforcement overseas how to do rescues. I talked to a lot of different people. So the person we're going to have on today, this guest has worked in a law enforcement unit that specialized in human trafficking in a major U.S. county. 
Um, we're not going to disclose her identity or where she worked or anything because she is still in that space and doing very important and sensitive work. But she is going to give us a glimpse into the work that she does, how traffickers are tracked, how they're captured. And then we want to talk about her very sage advice about how to keep your kids safe. Rhonda is working as an intelligence analyst. And she, as you said, has a wealth of experience in working with helping to either rescue traffic victims or um, understanding how victims, especially young children, can get trafficked in the first place. What are some of the ways that, you know, people in cyberspace target victims and how you as a parent or an auntie, a youth leader can work to keep your kids safe from potential traffickers. So let's go ahead and bring Rhonda on. Yeah, and we do want to say that Rhonda's not her real name. So I've been close to her real name, but she is a real person. So welcome to all the things. Thank you. It's a cool name. I, I like Rhonda, actually. I may start using that as a nickname. Okay. Well, there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen and Monique, both, both for having me. I really appreciate being with you uh, today. Thanks. We're so glad to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how it relates to human trafficking? Absolutely. Um, so I work as an intelligence analyst, and, and I'll just define that because it can mean a lot of different things. But I work specifically in law enforcement as an intelligence analyst. And so my job in that realm is to collect and analyze and interpret information so that I can provide insights and recommendations uh, to mitigate crimes or threats to, uh, again, my law enforcement team. Now, within that specifically, I worked with a human trafficking task force in our jurisdiction. So again, major U.S. county, huge U.S. county, um, and worked with that specific team to, to cover human trafficking cases in our jurisdiction. Now, right now, uh, I do work in the private sector. It was a recent change for me. But even with the current job that I have, I still do work human trafficking cases. And I actually volunteer still with a couple of organizations that focus specifically on child exploitation and human trafficking. Um, so when I was with that team, um, essentially, I would assist in our investigations. I would um, assist with the initial vetting of tips of human trafficking that come in, I would use a variety of sources, law enforcement sources, commercial databases, most specifically open source, which is basically everything that you can find on the internet. Um, and basically I would just try to help our understand our uh, investigators understand who was involved and, and would try to help vet out these tips. And then as that moved forward, again, assisting in the investigation in any way I can with, with information. I think what's really interesting and important about your work, Rhonda, is that you, and we're going to talk more about this as the show unfolds, but I want to say up front, you use a lot of what you call open source sources, information. Um, and I'm sure you know how to do a lot of different kinds of searches. And I think that it's a, what we're going to get into a little bit later. And I want to encourage people to stay tuned and watch the whole conversation because that kind of public information is going to play an important role in how we keep our kids safe. And so we're going to want to talk about that and unfold that later in the conversation. But let's start with some numbers. There are some who are out there right now. They claim that, you know, every 30 seconds, a child is trafficked. 
or sex, slavery. I'm even hearing about with some of the experts I've been talking to about organ harvesting, trafficking, people being trafficked for organs. Um, are these claims true? Is it really this bad? Um, I'm not even sure in the beginning I even knew what it means to be trafficked. Like, what is that term even mean? Give us kind of a feel for what's out there and what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's start with that claim about every 30 seconds a child is uh, sold for sex, slavery, or even or organ harvesting. Um, so as I kind of laid out, I, I'm a researcher by trade. It's what I do. I research things on the Internet. That's one of my sources, obviously. Um, so I took some time to to try and get to the 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 source of this claim. And in fact, I even had a couple of my colleagues, I had to enlist some help because I couldn't find information on where this claim came from. So basically what comes down to is what I could find is a lot of social media posts of people sharing that specific claim about every 30 seconds. I found some news articles where they would interview someone who threw out that claim. Um, but I have to tell you that between myself and the very experienced colleagues that I asked for some help from, none of us were actually able to find the original source of that claim. And without finding that original source, we also couldn't look at the original data. We don't even know where that comes from. So with that, but it's I repeated all the time. It is. By, it is. By yeah. big name people that Absolutely. we won't mention. Absolutely. Yes. And and okay. one of one of my colleagues, again, found that claim, I believe the farthest back that she could find it was 2014, I think was the date that she gave me. Um, so it's been around for a while. It's not a new thing. But again, cannot find where that data comes from, what the source of that is. And so if we can't look at the data and we can't look at the math, then I can't validate it. I, it just comes down to that. I, I can't validate that claim for you. But with that being said, just because that particular claim that is being shared you know, over and over again without any source data, just because that claim isn't true, it does not make human trafficking any less of a global issue. Um, it is the second largest criminal enterprise in the world, just behind drug trafficking. Uh, the estimates are that it's a $150 billion industry. Um, so to, to go on kind of to your next question, like what is human trafficking? What What is it even? Mm -hmm. um, human trafficking and I'm going to I'm going to use the United States federal definition of what human trafficking is. It is the use of force, fraud or coercion to compel a person into a commercial sex act or labor act against their will. So human trafficking includes both sex acts or labor acts against somebody's will. And there's got to be someone that's that's using, again, that force, fraud or coercion to make them do it. So that is that is human trafficking. Now, the only exception to that definition, uh, there is no such thing as child prostitution. OK, mm. there, there children cannot choose to go into the sex industry. It is not something that they can they are, are able to make that decision. Um, so the only exception to that particular rule is that you do not have to prove force, fraud or coercion when it comes to a child being trafficked. They are trafficked plain and simple. Um, so really what comes down to uh, is that I I am going to have a very difficult time. I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm going to have a very difficult time giving you 
completely true and accurate numbers. And I need to say that up front, and I definitely want your listeners to understand that if somebody is throwing out a definite number that sounds very generalized, you have to be very careful with that number. And again, understand the source of that number and the data. So the the quantity and the quality of data regarding human trafficking is affected for a variety of reasons. Uh, It is an underground crime. It's happening as we speak, and it is not being reported. It happened in the past, and it wasn't reported. Uh, Many victims are either too ashamed or too afraid to ask for help. And then even adding on top of that is that trafficking is the one crime I can think of where victims may not actually see or identify themselves as victims. They don't even know that they're victims of a crime for a variety of reasons. So with all of that, and then of course you have you have different organizations all working at different levels of this field who are not sharing data. So coming up with solid, like this is the, the impact of human trafficking is gonna be very difficult, but I can try and give you guys some numbers the best that I can. Um, so I'm gonna go with three of the most respected organizations that are tracking these numbers. First of all, uh, we've got Polaris Project, which runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline here in the United States. Um, we're going to talk about the United, uh, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. They produce a global report on trafficking in persons. And then finally, I'm also going to include the International Labor Organization, which produces uh, a report called the Global Estimates of Modern Slavery. So it's important for me to note that all three organizations are reporting on trafficking as a whole. So we are talking sex trafficking and labor trafficking. They'll often break those numbers out, um, but it is important that they are covering trafficking as an issue. Um, The numbers that I'm going to give you, if you hear me say that it's an estimate, um, it's probably close to a good number. If you hear me say that it's based on trafficking reports, you can guarantee that the number that I'm going to tell you is a fraction of what's actually happening. So um, if we can just start with the United States, the most recent data from Polaris was produced in 2022, and it's an analysis of their 2021 data. So again, Polaris runs the human trafficking hotline. This is data that they get in from their hotline and from the law enforcement agencies that they work with. So in 2021, there were 10,359 trafficking situations reported to the annual hotline. Of those 10,000 situations, there were a total of 16,610 likely victims. So again, we can't even say that they're confirmed victims, but they're likely victims out of that. If you want to focus solely on sex trafficking within those numbers, so I told you there were 16, over 16,000 likely victims of trafficking, over 11,000 of those were likely sex trafficking victims, okay? Um, So that's for the United States. If we want to go globally, again, the UNODC only produces their trafficking report every two years. So the most recent one came out in January of this year, 2023, and it covered cases between 2018 and 2021. So again, we're we're not even looking at numbers from 2022 or 2023. Their data only comes from member states. It does cover 95% of the world's population, but just keep in mind, there's several uh, um, countries that are not involved in the UN. So the most recent number of detected victims reported globally in 2020 were 53,800, okay? 
And then finally, the last number I want to give you is from the International Labor Organization. I know I'm throwing out all these numbers. This was a report produced in September of 2022, at which estimates, estimates that in any given time in 2021, that approximately 27.6 million people were either labor or sex trafficked, all right? 27.6 million people in a trafficking situation. Um, as far as child sex trafficking specifically, um, where the age of entry into this life is known from the victims that they identified, 1,400 of them were adults, 4,500 of them were minors when they were first trafficked. Okay, so being a minor uh, is is uh, is something that that is concerning, obviously. So if I can throw in one more source that I'm going to give you a number on, and then we can get back to a, a more organic conversation here. Um, of the more than 25,000 cases of missing children reported, these are the ones to in the U.S. These are the ones. Yes, the US. these are the ones. These are reports to NECMEC in the United States of children reported missing. Okay, so there's there's obviously all things going on here right now where you've got runaways, kids that are reporting missing. You're talking about a segment of the population um, of those reported missing who had run away. One in six of those were likely victims of sex trafficking. So, again, it's it's this is not a stat where you're going to say one in six kids will likely be sex. Tra- no, there there are other things going on. That child was reported missing, ran away. There's the potential that one in six were likely sex trafficked. So. Again, for all these reasons, it's very difficult to give you accurate numbers, but I hope that the numbers I've been able to give you at least give you some context as to the issue. Um, and Krista, Monique, I'm going to actually, I'll email you these links, these source links, um, so that you all, if you wanted to share them with your listeners and put them on the uh, the, the show notes, uh, you can That'd do that. Great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, I had a question going yeah. back to the accuracy of numbers and looking at things like people who were frauded into this or, you know, aren't really convinced that they're a part of a crime and things like that. Um, is that, gosh, it, do you find that that happens a lot? Like I used to work with kids in group homes who had been trafficked. And one of the things that they would immediately say is, well, it was my choice and you can't go for him because, you know, they're, they're pimp or things like that is that you can't go for this person because it was also my choice, not understanding that as a minor, you don't get a choice in that. But is that a lot of the the hiccup in maybe getting some of the accurate data is that people are, you know, willingly stepping out there or convinced that they are either helping someone or doing good to bring money in and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was that was, I, I would say, the majority of the cases that we that we encountered. You know, when I was when I was with the team, is that, and in fact, I can specifically remember uh, one of our victims. Uh, I think she was sixteen at the time, who said that this is what she wants to do. This is her choice, and she's going to do it until she is twenty two years old. It's like she'd made a life plan based off mm-hmm. of it. Um, it there's this. Um, they just don't realize that these the things that have led up to this have uh, have potentially impacted, resulted potentially in this decision that they think they have made, right? And so they think they have some autonomy in making this decision. Um, but there's a whole lot of factors that have gone into why they did not have that autonomy. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that that belief that it's their choice and 
you know, you, you can't go after him. You can't, you know, go after this person who's brought me into this life. That is definitely a pervasive issue. And that's what makes this crime so difficult to investigate, incredibly difficult to to file charges, and then even harder to get somebody arrested and in jail for this crime. So then with that understanding that it is hard or that people actually think that they are, you know, using their own agency to enter into this world, what are some of the scenarios that people are actually taken into this this arena of prostitution or trafficking, not just prostitution, but looking at trafficking overall? In Sound of Freedom, it was that people were being snatched. Kids were being snatched off the street or, you know, they're snatching their victims. Is that largely the way that people enter into this? Or is it more free will autonomy? Is it some combination of both? Yeah. I mean, I guess what what I want to reiterate is that from my experience that that I am dealing with trafficking in the United States. So I certainly don't want to give the impression that I understand how trafficking works around the world in various other countries. But but here in the U.S., at least, uh, sex trafficking rarely begins with a kidnapping by a stranger. Uh, people in trafficking situations almost always know and even trust their traffickers. Um, I'm going to throw one more number out for you. In 2022, according again to Polaris, 42% of trafficking victims were brought into trafficking by a family member. 39% were recruited through an intimate partner. So wow. let's just start. Let's just start with those two groups because uh, they make up the, the largest percentage. So the first, you you have familial trafficking, and this could be a parent selling their child. Uh, it could be a grandparent. It could be an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a sibling. It could be someone who is a close family friend that the child may call auntie or uncle. They're not actually family members, but the child, of course, perceives that person to be a family member. So they could be trafficked among friends. They could be trafficked within a neighborhood. They could be trafficked uh, in an online forum by, again, this family member uh, for whatever reason, for money, for drugs, um, again, for for whatever reason that this family member is is uh, is trafficking this child. But then you also have uh, th- this second group, again, the one that that Polaris calls by an intimate partner. Th- this generally will just will put in the category of pimp controlled trafficking. So this is someone who is not related to the victim, um, but they'll often develop some sort of relationship with the victim in order to exploit them later. Again, not the snatch and grab, but this is a a grooming process that they'll go through. So it could be a romantic partner or even a spouse, you know, somebody that you're married to. But it could be someone that the victim believes is their boyfriend or girlfriend. And it was created that that belief of that relationship is actually a tool that traffickers will use to manipulate and control their victims. So it would start out, uh, you know, as... Uh, a, a, a grooming situation where it's it's um, I don't know you you friend somebody on Instagram you let somebody follow you who you don't know and then they start going into your DMs telling you how beautiful you are um, you know can I get to know you they want to learn about your day they want to learn about your troubles they really want to learn about your troubles because those are vulnerabilities that they can mm-hmm. exploit later um, the next thing you know it's it's where you believe you have this relationship with them and um, it moves forward into Again, this whole grooming process, um, which, you know, I can get into in a second. But another tactic, though, doesn't necessarily have to be romantic in this kind of thing. It could be someone who um, 
uh, takes advantage of other vulnerabilities in other ways, like runaways who need to be meet basic needs. They need housing. They need security. They need food. Um, it could be someone who is living in poverty, and, and and we I have a specific case of this happening. The the trafficker, the pimp, was was throwing out the fact that uh, his victim would be able to buy whatever makeup she wants. She'll be able to buy whatever clothing she wants. She can go on vacations whenever she wants to. And so they use all of these vulnerabilities of people. They will target them. They will target people with vulnerabilities. They'll gain their trust. I mean, this is the grooming process. They'll gain their trust. They'll create a dependence. They'll isolate that victim eventually. And then they're going to encourage the idea that selling themselves um, is, is normal and necessary. Wow, that's so helpful because I know for me personally, when I think about trafficking, I tend to think of like that movie Taken where the <laughs> girl is just snatched. And it's really helpful to think through the ways in which this is really an intentional um, you know, effort on someone's behalf to really gain relationship with them and exploit them through a process, not just and in America. And we're, like you said, we're not talking about, you know, every trafficking situation in America or every trafficking situation around the world. But I think when that movie Taken came out, people were like, oh, let me hold my kid close because I don't want them to be snatched. But in reality, you should be holding your kid in their computer or their cell phone close because a lot of that starts in this Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat kind of realm. Absolutely. And it's it's funny because you'll see you'll see on social media, you'll get that random post that somebody shared about I was in the grocery store today and I saw somebody eyeing my child. I again, not to say it doesn't happen um, because we do, of course, see those those rare news stories of those. But that's not how it generally happens. And it's just so important to understand how it generally happens, because it is a brainwashing process. In fact, if I can just throw this out. When Charles Manson was in jail when he was younger, do you know he, who he studied while he was in jail? He studied pimps. He studied pimps. He studied their manipulation techniques, their brainwashing techniques, and how they control their victims. Um, so it is very much a brainwashing process, and that is generally how this is going to work. I'm imagining that there's certain people who are particularly vulnerable to being trafficked. I mean, we hear these rumors about, and I don't know how much credibility there is, and I don't want to put you on the spot because you haven't researched this, but like you, you hear rumors about particularly children in foster care seem vulnerable to trafficking. That makes me think that people who maybe have a, a home life that is unstable or maybe children living in poverty have a particular vulnerability to these issues. You're absolutely right. I mean, those are those are two identified vulnerabilities. And again, it's this issue of um, of instability uh, within a family, within a home. And so that, it, you know, whether a child is lit currently living in an unstable uh, or unstable home, um, but Again, children, again, in foster care, children who are within the child welfare system, who are in the juvenile justice system for a variety of reasons, and that does include foster care, uh, runaway and homeless youth. Again, you know, the, all of this, I, children who lack strong support networks. These things come back to kids growing up in homes who, uh, are, who are not supportive, who are not loving, 
Um, again, instability, whether that's uh, economic reasons, whether it's substance abuse reasons, um, whether it's uh, families that are, are, are broken, living in poverty. It, it, again, it is, yes, that instability does become a vulnerability uh, for trafficking. Um, people with a history of trauma and abuse, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse uh, are part of that. Um, and, and again, because of the economic issues, racial or ethnic minorities are actually um, are, are, are vulnerable to trafficking. And then, of course, again, economic issues, where people live, gang activity could potentially make this a vulnerability. So what it, come, it comes down to, the fact these vulnerabilities um, is that there's something that the child or even the adult, I mean, we still need to talk about adult trafficking too. There is something that they want or they need desperately, right? Whether that's the promise of money, uh, housing, uh, food, um, drugs, love that they haven't received, safety yes. or belonging. It's all of these things. They will exploit that vulnerability and they will promise to fill that need or pretend to, right? Um, and so it just comes down to Again, these things that they need in order to feel complete. And so when you when you look at trafficking, again, specifically sex trafficking, there is a reason why um, women who who women, children who and, and boys and men, I, I, I don't mean to uh, to say that this is just an issue of, of girls and women. Um, it, it covers everyone. But there's a reason why uh, um, victims who all work for the same trafficker. The girls, they will call themselves wifey. They will all call the trafficker daddy. Uh, they all call the unit, all of these people together, they call them family. And there's a reason for that. They want belonging and they want what they what they think is safety. That is, it's heartbreaking. And it's still, it's very interesting to learn and to understand some of the ways in which um you know, their trafficker can play on some of these either insecurities or vulnerabilities and the ways that those needs essentially are met, even though we know that it's not really meeting the need, but the way that it shows up as a, a met need. Um, gosh, when you when you think about like the work that you do, how do you work to help catch traffickers? It's... um. It's hard. <laughs> uh, so, well, I, I guess I can talk about like how we find out about them, right? And and to begin with, so we we will get tips first of all. Um, we get tips from from whether it's uh, again the National Human Trafficking Hotline, whether it's um, patrol officers who are working out in the field and see particular issues of domestic violence or things that happened on traffic stops or, or certain cases. Um, so those tips will come in. That's that's one of the ways that we would find out about them. Um, we would also potentially hear from nurses at hospitals who are seeing indicators, juvenile probation officers, again, social services who are dealing with foster kids or group home kids, uh, teachers, right? Teachers who, who are um, aware of these kids. So I, I'll go into it a little bit more in, in a bit, but what this comes down to is, is, is what we call context and proximity. Um, so somebody that has proximity to an in individual, whether it's a victim or whether it's a trafficker, um, and then has context of a situation that they believe that there's human trafficking happening, taking it upon themselves 
to who's making that tip is is one way that we find out. Um, having a victim directly contact us does happen, not very often, but it be, but it does happen. And then we would also do you know a lot of proactive work as well. So whether that was uh, something like um, researching escort advertisements within the jurisdiction, looking for these indicators that may indicate uh, that that this individual has a trafficker that you can see from their advertisement are different ways that we would that we would find out about uh, potential traffickers in our jurisdiction. But from from there, it just it becomes a standard law enforcement investigation. Right. So um, one of the things that would always happen when we got tips is that they would come in with very little information. It would always be, a, you know, an anonymous tipster. Usually if they, if they called the hotline, it would be an anonymous tipster and they would give us simply a phone number or somebody's street name or somebody's social media handle. And they would just say, for whatever reason, I believe this person is being trafficked or is trafficking someone. And so, um, you know, my job just there at the very beginning is try to find out who they're talking about, even to begin with. Right. And then once we identify who this individual is, it's a it's a thorough backgrounding on, again, all of their law enforcement contacts in the past, looking for those indicators. Have they been arrested before? Has there been some sort of sexual uh um, uh, crime that they've committed before uh, or domestic abuse. Um, these are all things that we would kind of look for in those in those situations. And then from that point, um, uh, trying to corroborate a victim's story is huge. So when we did have a victim call, um, we would obviously take the story that they told us and and corroborate it with evidence that we could find. So that was part of my job. We talked about open source. I would go to social media. Can I find this trafficker on social media? Can I see the victim's social media? Were they posting photos? Were they posting from certain locations? Are they using human trafficking language in these posts? Trying to find ways to corroborate the story that the victim provided. And that, of course, allows for a probable cause for things like search warrants and surveillance and, and moving forward from there. So it was basically the investigation would just try to determine whether or not someone is using force, fraud, or coercion to control another person. Wait a minute. So do people post on social media clues that you can pick up on and then you're thinking, yeah, this person's po probably trafficking or is a victim of trafficking? I'm confused. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you would be shocked. You would be shocked, honestly. Um, you know, more often than not, traffickers themselves are obviously going to be very careful about what they post online or what they share, or what they talk about publicly, um, because, you know, obviously law enforcement might be looking. Um, but you would be surprised by the number of individuals who who share publicly uh, indicators that they are either trafficking victims or that they're doing the trafficking. And in fact, I, I, I use a particular case study when I train all the time of a trafficker who would post publicly on his social media account five times a day talking about um, what he expected from his girls, uh, how he ran his business, uh, his philosophy. These are all things called isms. Um, an ism is basically the, the pimp's philosophy about pimping. And he would share these things not only to train his girls about how they're supposed to behave, but in order to train uh, other upcoming pimps and in order to um, try and win girls from from other pimps uh, and get them to choose him. So it's amazing to me. But yes, you can find indicators on social media of human trafficking.
I got questions. Please. Uh, so <laughs> you you okay, so the first thing is you could go to pimp school. Like they like he, he was running like a pimp school, a a, a school a <laughs> university for pimps. Yeah, I know what I said. I'm going to be able to show you two. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the viewers aren't going to see it, but um, there is a pimp who wrote two books about the pimp game. Now, I want them. His media handle is the educated pimp. That yep. means that. Right? So, and, and I bought them. I will tell you, I bought them used because I was not about to give this guy my money, but I bought them because I wanted to understand their mindset you know where they're coming from because once i understand them hopefully i can track them a little bit better but absolutely there is this there is this doctrine around pimping and and there are rules um that victims have to follow and we have found in in a couple of cases where the trafficker actually forced his victim to write down what those rules were um, as far as uh, I, I, I'll give you an example of, of a rule, um, you are not allowed to look another trafficker in the eye. So if, you know, if someone comes up um, that is another trafficker, you cannot you cannot look him in the eye because the second you look him in the eye, he now owns you. That's a rule. It's a rule of the game. And so these things are are important. It's important for them to be shared, you know, among their or among their group. And um, so that everybody can abide by these rules. It's fascinating, isn't it? Is one of the rules branding? Because a lot of the girls that I worked with were always branded on their face. Yeah. I mean, it can be. It depends on the trafficker. Absolutely. There are traffickers that will require the girls to get a tattoo, uh, you know, a tattoo on their face. A lot of times, mm-hmm. maybe like over an eyebrow. Uh-huh. Um, they do that to show ownership. They're showing ownership of that of that person. And in order to let other people know, they're already owned. There's a lot of other um, tattoos that are indicators of trafficking as well. So uh, a, a crown, um, it, it's a thing basically like girls have to to bow down to the crown. It, he's her king um, is, is one of those things. Uh, and again, this is not to say just because someone has a crown tattoo, it means they're being trafficked, but it's just yeah. one of those things. Uh, their name, their moniker, uh, their, their, you know, their street name that they use, um, that can be branded on them. Definitely. It's not technically a rule for them to be branded, but you'll find a lot of traffickers do, in fact, they do, do that. And so one of the things that we would look for, especially looking at victims, is if you see a particular tattoo on a victim and then you see that exact same tattoo on another potential victim, another girl, you might be looking at somebody that's working within the same stable. And that okay. and that's what they're called. It's a stable uh, when you've got a bunch of girls that all work for one trafficker. Obviously, we, we don't call them that. It's yeah. the trafficker that calls them their stable. Yeah. So, yeah, that can definitely be one of those things that they do. And then about the escort advertisement that you mentioned earlier, is it like an ad in the penny saver or <laughs> like how are we is it like back to the social media thing that you were saying with the five posts a day or Monique has questions I know I it's I'm I'm happy to share I'm absolutely happy to share there are websites that are escort advertisement websites and so I'm sure a lot of you probably recognize the name Backpage right Backpage was kind of the 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 mega uh, advertisement area for sexual services. Um, uh, Backpage was taken down by the FBI, fortunately, in 2018. Um, but there, as you can imagine, a variety of websites popped up after that. Hundreds, actually. And there are hundreds more websites 
that will scrape those original websites for the advertisements and post them. So it's just it, it is just a ridiculous it's it's tons of websites where these services are are advertised and offered. Um, that's one way. You know, the other way, of course, is through social media, is through those interpersonal connections. Um, so that is, of course, another way that girls that girls can be trafficked. They can do it specifically on on uh, on social media itself. Um, and then, there, of course, there's the actual physical uh, physical trafficking, if you will, that doesn't happen necessarily online as far as uh, how the, the the buyer contacts someone originally is is um, what they call the blade or the track. That is a street that is in, you know, your major city or jurisdiction where uh, the victims will actually walk up and down the street in, in order. That's like the old traditional way, of course, before there was social media and these online advertisement places. But that still happens. That still happens. We used to call it the stroll. The stroll, absolutely. Another yeah, word for it. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, so, so, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, so, Rhonda, you mentioned earlier something that is a little offhanded comment, and I'm wondering if we could go back to it. Oh, uh, okay. Parents listening. You said that one of the things, one of the tools that you use is looking where a picture was taken, like a location. And I'm wondering if, that's something that parents need to know about to help keep their kids safe from people that might trace them or track them online. Like, can, can is there a way for people to know where a picture is taken? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think in the, the context of where I originally mentioned it was was corroborating a victim's story. So right. just as a random example, like she said that in November over Thanksgiving that she was taken to Los Angeles on, on I don't know, whatever. And, and and that's where she was trafficked. And she described a place, right? And so I go to her social media, I go to the trafficker's social media, and I look at the pictures from November. And I see, you know, where she's taking pictures from. So that's, that's one part of it. But the other part of it, when you're talking about kids and keeping kids safe, absolutely. You know, if, if we're posting photographs uh, from from schools, uh, from activities, from bedrooms, um, all different kinds of locations. There, there are ways to to figure out where that photo is, right? I mean, there's things called reverse image search. Anybody can do it to try and find particular places that are in a photograph. But more importantly, with those photos, is that the trafficker and and we can kind of kind of keep child exploitation in the conversation too, right? So you've got traffickers and then you also have predators, people who who aren't selling a child to someone else, but it's for their own gratification, right? So keep them in keep them in mind, I guess, with this conversation, is that they what's most important is from those photographs, they learn things about the child, right? That they can use. So they see potentially that, you know, if you if you took a picture from your bedroom, you've got that award from your school. Well now they know where they go to school, um, or they see that the child is into, I don't know, hockey, right? And so then they can start broaching the subject of, again, using things that they learn about them to create a relationship with them. So it is just something to keep in mind. Um, there are things that you can learn from photographs. Absolutely. What, what cautions do you think parents, like when you look at social media, if you could sit down in front of parents and say, please stop doing this, please stop posting these things, 
you know, what would some of those things be that you think that you wish parents had more aware of with regard to maybe predators or people who want to peek in on their child's life? Right. It's, you know, it's such a hard thing because I don't, I don't want to be a fear monger, right? I mean, yeah. I, I believe that most people are good. I really do. I still believe that. Even the work that I do, I still believe that most people are good. I have to believe that. It's the only way to get through a day, right? Um, but the flip side of that is because I've seen some of these cases, I can see the awful things that happen. So um, posting, again, photos of your children uh, doing that publicly is very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Um, as a as just kind of a, an example story is that we arrested a, a predator um, and within his phone, he had photographs of thousands of children. Now, he was smart because he'd been arrested for this before. He knew not to have what we would consider explicit child sexual exploitation material where a child is possibly unclothed. He had thousands of photographs of young children in bathing suits, in dance costumes, um, things that he had scoured from the internet or from social media that were shared publicly that he could keep into his phone for his own gratification, but weren't bad enough for him to get arrested for child sexual exploitation, right? Um, so I, I guess for parents, that's kind of one thing for me is we don't need to be sharing so many public things about our children all the time. And again, sharing them the publicly um, is concerning because we don't know who's downloading those photos or what they're doing with them. Are there Please. ways that parents can help their kids think about avoiding, I don't know, these kind of online relationships? So many parents think that they're doing good in monitoring those things. But I also know that there are loopholes, you know, some gaming platforms allow people to talk to each other in the chat or you know are there things that you know when I, when I was growing up I'm so old that my my mother just told me you know don't take candy from strangers right and that that was pretty much the conversation about how to stay safe yeah but uh you know what is it that we need to be thinking about as parents when it comes to these issues and and paying attention um, to potential relationships that could form online. Yeah. It's, you know, it's hard because the easiest answer is, you know, don't give your kid a smartphone, right? I mean, that's just, they can't have one. But but that's that's not the best answer, obviously, because um, there's, there's reasons, obviously good reasons, why they would potentially need a smartphone. And so just trying to... Uh, and again, as a parenting technique, just kind of like putting the hammer down on one particular thing, probably not the best way to go. The best way to go, I think, honestly, is is first of all, choosing an appropriate age for when they do get a smartphone. Um, I, I would push closer to to 14, 15. I, you know, having an eight year old with a smartphone, not a good idea. Um, but really more importantly is is finding and there's great resources out there, finding out how to have these age-appropriate conversations with your children from a young young age. And I hate to say it, but you need to do it from a young age because they're going to be bombarded 
by all kinds of material and potentially people that are contacting them the second that you let them to go out on the the big wide internet, right? And so having age appropriate conversations with them about um, the dangers of social media and online gaming, um, talking about sexual abuse, exploitation, what is sexploitation? What is trafficking, right? Having these conversations with them again in an, in an age appropriate way and then keep having those conversations with them, adjusting the conversation as they get older. Um, so understanding um, how how grooming works, right? So at a young age, but you, you teach your children about um, uh, their their body autonomy and, and things that they don't allow to happen and things that they say no to. And again, if anyone makes them feel uncomfortable, that kind of thing, have conversations about that. As they move forward, talking about okay, you're this age now and we're going to allow you to have an Instagram account. Um, here's the dangers of accepting people who are not, you don't actually know in real life. And that's, to me, that's kind of a big rule. Like don't accept friends or followers of people that you do not know in real life. Um, and and again, just having this conversation, talking about um, ways as they get older again of, of the grooming process and how that happens they're going to come in they're going to act like they're your best friend they're going to tell you that your friends you know don't support you that your parents don't support you they're going to start working this idea into your head understanding that grooming process and telling them those things again i don't want you talking to people online but understanding that it's probably going to happen so even kids who have been allowed to have an instagram account right mom and dad friended it they follow it. They see what they post. Um, they have secondary Instagram accounts that you don't know about, you know, or even I, I knew of one child who got banned from um, having her social media account. Mom shut off Wi-Fi at the house, all kinds of things. When she went over to her cousin's house, she was on cousin's phone logging into that account. So there's ways for kids to get around it. So the important thing, I think the main thing that parents can do is to to fill your home with love first and foremost Fill your home with love, that sense of security and comfort for your children. And that that does not mean never telling them no. Believe me, my kids have heard no plenty of times. A loving household is setting up those those healthy boundaries for your kids, right? So at that home of love. And then, of course, paying attention. Paying attention is just going to be a huge thing. So um, we I know we all get busy. We're so busy with work. Kids come home from school. We got to make dinner. They need to do homework. We got to get going. And everybody's kind of in their separate worlds, just kind of living around each other. Pay attention to your kids and and look for those signs that we often as parents, I think, dismiss as phases. We think, ah, he's just a surly teenager. This is what he goes through, right? Um, but check in with your kids often identify uh, concerning patterns or behaviors that have changed, changes in personality, because what you're seeing may not necessarily, it, well, it might be a sign of a normal adolescent behavior, but it also should be something that you need to pay attention to and look into. Um, and then finally, having that type of relationship with your kids where where they know, um, and this is something that I've done with with my own, is is saying, I, I know that it might be hard to have a conversation with me. I understand that. Um, but if anything ever happens online, once you've educated them about the things that can happen, that makes you uncomfortable or you're concerned for yourself, you're concerned for a friend, they've told you a story, come talk to me. And if you can't come talk to me, talk to another trusted adult. Identify who that person is in their life that they can trust, that they can talk to. And um, again, just 
finally, I think once you've given them this education of things to look out for, encourage them to look out for their friends. All right. They're, they may not necessarily talk to us. They may not talk to their teachers, their guidance counselors. They're going to talk to their friends. And I, I have such a great example. Um, we have an activity that that one of my kids does. And, and I had another child at that activity, a teenager, and her mom pull me into a room and say, can we talk to you? And and this this girl has a friend who was talking to someone online. It went somewhere that it shouldn't have gone. He didn't want to tell his parents. He was terrified, but he talked to her about it. And then she was so smart enough and had been taught so well by her parents that she decided that she needed to talk to a trusted adult to find out what she should do. So they need to be looking out for each other as well. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really good. Um, and I'm glad that you uh, just opened it up as far as like any kid, any parent, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no yes. matter what your ethnicity is. Because I know earlier in the show, we laid out the vulnerabilities and a lot of those vulnerabilities are like, you know, kid in a foster care, kid from a lower socioeconomic background, minorities are more prevalent like in this trafficking realm and things like that. But in reality, a good trafficker is good. They, like you said, they do have a way of approach and a study to this and a methodology behind this. And just because your kid may not look like the kid who would get trafficked does not mean that your kid won't. I know of someone who is white and they are upper middle class and her kid was that kid who is smart on the volleyball team, runs track, does all these different things. And yet, at the end of the day, was that kid that they had to end up getting law enforcement involved because there was a trafficking situation. And so we never want to post it. And our heart isn't, you know, for all of you who are watching, our heart isn't to post it and say that only these kids are the ones that you should watch out for. It's any kid. Any kid can be vulnerable to this because these people who are doing the traffickers, who are doing the trafficking, are experienced and well-versed in what they do and they have a methodology to it. Absolutely. And Monique, I'm so glad you came back to that because after we did that portion, I was like, oh, I, I, it's such a great thing that you pointed out is that there, like we said, there are specific groups that tend to be more vulnerable and we mm-hmm. talked about them. But think about any teenager who is trying to find their place in this world, right? Who, who maybe you know, they, and, and same thing. We had several cases of 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 teenagers who who were straight A students who were involved in school, who who seemed by all effects to be to be um, confident and and strong and and had a path in their life or whatever it is. But they still have insecurities. They still have those vulnerabilities mm-hmm. that traffickers were holding. Will hold. Whole, whole, you know what word I'm trying to say, hone in on. That's the word I'm trying to say, that they'll hone in on. And that's the key is that they will look for these vulnerabilities. And so whatever they may be, um, in whatever situation the, the, the child is in, again, whether it's this specifically more vulnerable group or it's the, your neighbor next door, um, yeah. they have vulnerabilities too. And yeah. that's what they do. They exploit them. So again, making sure that child feels love and secure and can talk to you as a parent or has someone to talk to, those are all ways that you can fight back as far as um, trying to to fight back against what a trafficker may be trying to put in their ear. 
Yeah, that's that's great. And they're all, you know, good tips. I'm glad that we're having this conversation to be able to help people become aware of, you know, this, this is some of what you can look for. Rhonda, what are some signs that someone, whether it's a child or maybe my adult friend, might be caught up in trafficking? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because in in all human trafficking trainings that I've ever taken that I'm sure many of your listeners maybe have taken some online or have gone to meetings, um, we always talk about these um, these signs, these indicators of trafficking. Right. And so uh, a lot of them would be talking about, you know, someone who um, potentially has you know, physical abuse or the, or they're exhausted, they're, you know, extremely tired. Um, they look disheveled or, but, but in all honesty, what it really comes down to is that, um, and Polaris recently kind of put out new verbiage for this. And so we're going to come back to this context and proximity. Um, trafficking is a crime that's hidden in plain sight. So generally speaking, when you're crossing somebody in the street or whatever it is, you're not going to be able to just see indicators that they're potentially being trafficked. Um, th- the key really is is not necessarily knowing the signs, but knowing the story. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of Polaris is, is focusing on right now. And I'm actually, I'm very excited that, that we're kind of moving in this direction now, uh, as opposed to these are the things that you should look for. Because once you start putting people in a box or you start things looking at things that you need to check off, uh, there's so many different situations. It's easy to miss something or it's me- easy to misinterpret something too, which is also dangerous, right? So the best thing, the best way to to look out for family, for friends, for people that you come in contact with is to pay attention. Pay attention to the people that you know that you interact with. So your children, your students, if you're a teacher, your patients, if you're a nurse or a doctor, uh, your coworkers, your friends, um, and we're going to use these two words, proximity and context. So proximity is basically some sort of relationship with that you may have with a potential victim or trafficker. And it, it doesn't need to be a close relationship. Uh, it doesn't need to be someone where you're like best friends with this person. It could be, um, you know, kind of going to the labor trafficking field. It could be an establishment that you um, that you frequent and you've be have some sort of relationship potentially with a person who works there. Um, again, it could be a teacher who is aware of certain kids within within uh, within the school, right? So just prox- proximity is just some sort of relationship with that individual. And then context is the circumstances that form the setting of a situation in in ways that help us understand it and assess it, okay? So we all have proximity with people every single day. And with that proximity, we can then use the context of their situation to understand what kind of situation that they're in. So as an example of this, a friend, a, a teacher, um, a parent might notice a teenager who, um, who, again, who's been doing well in school, who was involved in activities, who had a close-knit circle of friends, and they seemed to be uh, well-adjusted. Um, but then things are starting to change. So they're starting to potentially miss classes. Uh, they seem exhausted when they are in class. Um, you hear maybe from other students or other kids that they have this mysterious new boyfriend or a mysterious older boyfriend, right? Or somebody that they're constantly talking to online. They're constantly glued to their phone. And now they're kind of isolated from that group of friends that they had, or they're running in a completely different circle, right? 
um, all of a sudden they're maybe before they dressed, you know, just like a normal teenager, but now all of a sudden they're dressing in a more sexualized way. Or now all of a sudden, again, uh, let's just say middle-class home, they had what you would consider like middle-class belongings, right? They've got the hand-me-down iPhone, they've got uh, a purse that was bought at TJ Maxx, but now all of a sudden they're coming in with designer clothing, with that brand new phone, they're coming in with very expensive material things. So the the teacher, the parent, the friend, whoever's involved in this situation has proximity to this person, right? And then looking at the context of the situation and everything that's happening, now we're seeing what potentially are indicators of trafficking. Wow. I mean, I don't know that people would think of that yeah. all the time, you know, or how many people are actually paying attention. And so when you talk about um, context and proximity, it I think those two things kind of go hand in hand. You know, am I actually paying attention? How close am I to this person? Do I understand the context? Do I understand the story? Have I asked about the story? There, there's a lot that goes into that. It just, there is. Yeah, it really makes me think about how we do this well, especially as believers. We really and, have to pay attention. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That's, that's what really striking me about that is in the social media age, I feel like so much of our relationships have become so much online that we don't pay attention sometimes to those details about people's lives and what you're... Yes calling us to Rhonda in in proximity and context is staying connected to people really matters because if if our friend is in some kind of trouble whether it's trafficking or something else looking for those little shifts and we can't be so absol absorbed in our own lives that you know we just don't pay attention to anything that's happening around us. Um, you're re you're really calling us to a high place of of um, engagement and care and concern yeah. for our neighbor. Yes, absolutely. And and yeah, it's it to me. It's the only way to do it, and the only way to do it accurately. The only way to do it um, so that there may be a good outcome of this at the end. You know, and, and again, so it's you know if you see. I don't know, you're in the grocery store, and you see an older man and a younger girl. And all of a sudden, again, people are very passionate about this issue, right? And it has come into the forefront so much recently, that all of a sudden, it's like, it's trafficking, you know, and, and we would get tips all the time of people, it's trafficking. You're not looking at the context. You're not looking at the context of the situation. It's very easy to take these little bullet points that that we used to be trained on, and try to apply them in a situation. But, um, you know, the the idea of, of a nurse taking the time to talk to a girl who has potentially come in with a medical issue, right? Well, why does she have this medical issue? Is there somebody in the waiting room um, or somebody that maybe even came into the room because they wouldn't let her be alone, you know? Um, are there other things going on in this situation? Again, context. So the nurse has proximity with the patient. They don't know each other. They're not friends. They're only going to be together for a short period of time. The nurse has has no previous relationship with her, but they have proximity at this moment. And then the nurse has the possibility of looking at the context of the situation and then understanding that, yes, it looks like there's a potential human trafficking situation in here. They, every victim's story is different. 
It happens in different ways. It starts in different ways. It continues in different ways. And so that's why I think having um, the the establishing this this relationship, being concerned about the people in our lives, being concerned about the people that we come in contact in our community every single day, uh, that's how we're going to be able to to get closer to eradicating this problem. So if we suspect trafficking in a situation, you know, I know that some professions probably have protocols for this, like nursing and teaching. Like they 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 have the steps, they have the process. I'm just a normal person. I'm just out here living my life and I'm starting to wonder about a particular person or relationship of someone that I'm connected to or I see something. Mm-hmm. What should I do? It, it, what do I even call? Well, um, if first and foremost, if this is if someone is in immediate danger, you of course call nine one one. So we'll just put that right out there. Sure. Um, but if this is a case where you feel that something is happening and you want to submit a tip or a report, um, you can call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Um, if you are some, if you are a victim and you would like to call, you know, please call. It's eight eight eight. 373-7888. Or you can even text. The number is 233-733. So those are two ways that you can file a tip. You could, of course, call your your local law enforcement agency. Um, A lot of jurisdictions now all over the country have specific human trafficking task forces. So you could uh, obviously do your research in your jurisdiction and find a number for your local task force in order to provide that tip. Um, So it's just important, you know, depending on your relationship with the person, if this is someone who is an incredibly close friend that you feel that you can have a conversation with to try and, um, you know, suss out what's happening or, or if they need help or what's going on and you want to handle it that way, that's fine. Um, you know, just understand that if you try to approach someone who you're not close with, you know, they're they're just an acquaintance or, or even a stranger, really. Um, and again, this is just laymen. I'm not talking nurses and, and, and teachers and law enforcement. Um, just understand you could potentially put that person in a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I, it's not something that I personally would recommend. That's where I would recommend calling in that tip. And, and letting law enforcement uh, handle it from that point. Yeah, I mean, you could put the the victim in danger when you, and you can also put yourself in danger. Absolutely. A trafficker who's serious about, you know, his person, they they can get violent real quick. Absolutely. I, and that's, that's part of the reason why I'm anonymous today. I mean, you, mm-hmm. we, we work very serious cases. We put some very dangerous people behind bars and yeah. and I just have to consider myself and my family. And so that's something that you need to think about too. So yeah. think about your own personal safety in the situation. Um, and then of course, the, the, the victim's safety, because having that conversation, again, having that conversation could put them in danger, but having that conversation, they again may not believe that they are a victim. So you're not going to help a- in any way, shape or form with that conversation. So, uh, gosh, as we read, um, round out the show today, you have given different names of organizations and you've given like a number that we can call or a number we can text. What I've seen in the recent months more and more are 
is that there are more and more organizations coming out and saying, oh, we're a human trafficking organization or we're a human trafficking organization. And they're doing these fundraising campaigns and they're raising money and all of this. But should we be given like just to any random organization? Can you help us think through what are some of the things that we need to look for in an organization when we are considering giving our money to that organization? Yeah, absolutely. I, first and foremost, you're you're going to vet that organization like you would vet any other charity that you were going to give your money to. So regardless of the mission, um, you would go to those websites like, you know, Charity Navigator right, and go look at the the how they've been uh, researched and ranked. Go to the organization's website, download their annual report, you know, take a look at all of these things uh, to find out specifically you're talking a lot about fundraising, right? How are they spending that money? How are they spending that money? And what that comes down to is the mission. So what's the mission of the organization? If the mission of the organization is to provide services for victims, um, how are they doing that? Take a look at how they're actually doing it. Is it is it counseling? Is it housing? Is it job skills? Is it all of this? Are, you know, if they're only working a, a portion of that, are they aligned with other reputable organizations that are rounding out that that victim um that victim recovery and um can they talk about those organizations who do they work with so it same thing if you if you're looking at a potential organization that uh claims to go after traffickers okay that's that's great um how are you doing it and are you doing it legally right mm -hmm. um and then importantly as you're going uh, um finding these traffickers and you come across victims, well, what are you doing about them? Um, do you have, again, that network of other reputable organizations where the victim is able to get the services that they need? Or are you really just kind of swooping in and then just leaving them uh, high and dry? Um, more importantly to me, to me, though, when you're, when you're looking at um, supporting a human trafficking organization is do they have survivors as mm -hmm. board members, as volunteers or even as advisory members? Are there actually survivors? Do they look to these survivors for their expertise and for their recommendations? And then when the survivors give those expertise and those recommendations, does the organization go with that? Do they work from that? Um, do they have these people who are sharing their lived experience? They've actually been through it and they know how this works. Um, are they using that to shape their work? So it's not easy vetting out these organizations. And I'll be honest with you, every once in a while, I I even come across something of an organization that I maybe not necessarily donated to, but had goodwill toward, right? And then all of a sudden something happens and I'm like, mm. you know, it, so it, it's even, it even happens to me. It can be hard. Um, but keep your, keep your nose in the news. Uh, listen to to what people are saying about this organization, what your community is saying about it, what the volunteers say about it, um, again, what survivors are saying about it. And I think that's incredibly important um, is if you start hearing survivors or people who have worked in this field have questions, uh, begin to question an organization, don't dismiss it. There's a reason for it. Well, thank you, Rhonda. That Those are all really practical tips. Just thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today. Yeah, I, I know that Monique and I both have greatly benefited from this conversation. Our listeners are going to find it educational, and it's a great setup for some conversations that we're doing right now on the channel related to these topics. So 
Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, boy, I I don't know about you, but I learned a lot from all of that. Super informative and just gives us so much to think about. Like, one, you know, what is our biblical warrant even for being concerned about things like this? Mm Um, and, and how do we as Christ followers follow well in accordance with some of his transcultural principles? One of the first ones that I thought about in regards to trafficking, um, was that movie taken and how, how in the old Testament, like man snatching was punishable by death, but we see that transcultural principle reiterated in the New Testament, in Paul's words. And even though she said that a majority of, you know, trafficking in the United States anyway, isn't that, you know, snatching off the street situation, some of them are. And so as a believer, that's the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, I can be involved or should care about this because of some of the transcultural principles we find in the scriptures. What about you? Yeah, I think you're definitely on the right track. And I would even extend that. I think that it. I loved Rhonda's definition of trafficking that involved, you know, force, coercion, or fraud. Mm-hmm. All of those things are covered in scripture. Yes. And all of those ideas, if we look at God's eternal moral law, are condemned in scripture. And so to use those things for sexual exploitation, or labor exploitation. I mean, we are right square in line with scripture. And so if there's an issue that pastors need to be educating their people about, shepherding their people about, if they want to talk about a current justice issue, trafficking is such an important current issue. One of my pet peeves is when pastors only want to talk about past injustices things that were unjust, unjust in the past. What's well, great. We can have that historical perspective, but it really takes a prophetic voice to speak out on a current issue and say, this is wrong with biblical and moral authority. And I think that this, this kind of issue of trafficking is something that Christian leaders need to be vocal about and, and continue to raise awareness about. I do agree. I do definitely agree. This has been a very informative um, conversation. I'm really glad that Rhonda was able to, you know, take some time and boldness to actually, you know, speak into this. Yeah. And if people want more content, I know we mentioned Sound of Freedom a couple times. I have a movie review over at Theology Mom. I've got a blog post related to the film there and another podcast with some analysis so people can go check that out. All right. All right. With that... Have a good week. God bless. God bless. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.